This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Uli Lorimer is Director of Horticulture for the Native Plant Trust and their Garden in the Woods Botanic Garden in Massachusetts. His work as a native plant and biodiversity advocate is informed by years of work in the Brooklyn Botanic Garden's Native Flora Garden, in the Woodland Garden at Wave Hill in the Bronx, and even earlier at the U.S. Botanic Garden. Uli and I met just after we recorded this conversation during the annual conference of the Ecological Landscape Alliance, which was held in Amherst, Massachusetts, and where I was the keynote speaker. Now, these long weeks later, Uli reports that while the pandemic has been very disruptive, it has also brought people to gardening and to an increased interest in native plants, the climate, and an understanding that among what we deem essential at this time, biodiversity and a holistic resilience are key. His is a garden life journey in which it is Earth Day every day. Welcome, Uli. Thank you so much for such a warm welcome. I'm uh, very pleased to be here. Tell listeners a little more uh, descriptively and personally, what does your life in plants look like right now, Uli, both professionally and personally? Sure. Uh, so professionally, uh, as you mentioned, I am director of horticulture at Garden of the Woods and for Native Plant Trust. Native Plant Trust um, used to be known as the New England Wildflower Society, which um, some of your listeners may be more familiar with. But after having the same name for nearly 30 years, uh, we decided that we needed to rebrand uh, with a name that I uh, was a little more encompassing of all of the different things that our organization does. So in addition to oversight of the horticultural operations here at Garden of the Woods, uh, I'm also responsible for our retail operation, which is out at Nasami Farm. And that is a about 80 acre uh, nursery operation that's uh, near Amherst, so in western Massachusetts. And so that facility grows a lot of our plants for um, for our retail shop. It grows plants for Garden of the Woods here for our displays. Uh, and they also do contract grows for ecological restorations and um, those sorts of special projects. I am relatively new to the role. Uh, I arrived in Massachusetts in March of last year uh, after about 20 years in New York City where I used to work at Brooklyn Botanic Garden for 14 of those years, and then at Wave Hill before that. And I'm really pleased to be in this role because it, for me, is kind of the exact sweet spot of still being able to do the work and get my hands dirty, which is arguably what brings me the most joy about being in horticulture, is still being connected with the earth, and also being in a position to um, shape the future of a department um, and and sort of tackle um, larger research initiatives and other things that uh, just wasn't in a position to do in my old job. Um, moving out to Massachusetts also has meant that my family and I now have space to actually garden on our own, um, which is a little more difficult when you live in a city. And so I'm really looking forward to installing a big vegetable garden and and growing plants at home for pleasure, not just for work. But for me, plants have always been a, a sort of constant presence. And, um, you know, for some people, you might navigate by making a left at, uh, let's say, the McDonald's to get somewhere. Uh, most of my landmarks in my life are plants. And those are the things that I notice first. 
And I feel incredibly um, privileged to be able to do this work and be exposed to, you know, the real full breadth and beauty and diversity that Mother Nature has to offer. So I, I really, I can't stress that enough. I, I really feel very privileged and I don't take it for granted whatsoever. It is, as many of my, my guests on the program um, can are testament to, it, it is a calling. It is um, far more than a career. There is no boundary between our work life and our home life. It is it's a, a lifelong calling to be in in this kind of relationship with plants. Mm-hmm. No, I couldn't agree yeah. more. I mean, I also think it's 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 um, it's a kind of profession that you can really believe in. Like it's yeah. it's something that you know is good for you. It's good for the community. It's good for the planet. And having something that you really value so strongly is is uh, like I get. Uh, it just leaves me feeling really privileged. I can't, you know, it might sound like a broken record, but, <laughs> uh, but it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really important to me that um, I feel like what I'm doing is making a difference and making the world a better place. Yeah. Me too. Me too. You, you gave us a very, very nice overview there. Let's step back just a little bit in your personal sphere, because this is always of interest to me. And, mm-hmm. Give us a sense of the people and places and plants that you were mentioning as your kind of wayfinders uh, in your first description that grew you into a person for whom both meaning and horticulture would become drivers of everything that you you do, Uli. Yeah. So I think my my very first uh, influences in gardening with plants, uh, not surprisingly comes from, um, the women in my life and specifically my mother and her mother, my, my grandmother who lived in Germany. And, uh, I can recall very fondly, you know, some of my earliest memories of spending time in Germany with my grandparents and running around their backyard and exploring the sort of cow pastures behind her house um, and it just being this sort of wonderful world, um, full of sights and sounds and smells. And it was really captivating to me. And my mother here, um, always had a, a great garden. Um, and from very early on, I was involved in, you know, what I initially saw as chores, you know, raking and this sorts of thing. You know, she really kind of set the bar for me and in, in, in the interest for me in, in the natural world and in plants. Um, and again, I was fortunate enough that, that, um, I got to travel quite a bit too, um, not just in Europe, but around the United States. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, and, um, we would go to Longwood Gardens mm. frequently whenever anybody from Europe came over. Uh, to visit or other sorts of friends were in town. Um, we were sort of 10 minutes in the car away from Longwood. And so, I, again, I have these really early memories of, you know, running around Longwood Gardens and, and going to their formal borders. And then the highlight at the time for me was the koi pond so I could feed the fish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't have any specific interests in plants at that time, but it was still this really amazing space. And then ending up in the conservatory and then at the the eye, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Longwood, but Mm -hmm. they have sort of a water tower that that spills into a waterfall. And and so even though, you know, we did the same route every time, but it was it was always something new and exciting to see. And then as I grew older, I think I I just had kind of an innate innate curiosity about 
what those plants were that I would see in the woods or in my, in my mother's garden. Um, and I wanted to know who they were and how they grew. And that led me to working in a nursery in high school. And then as I get to college, I actually took a little bit of a departure. After high school, I uh, went to Ithaca College. And I think I was just so pleased to be away from my parents um, <laughs> that I did not do well in school. I was studying sports medicine because I thought I would get into sports. Um, and I failed out uh, miserably and ended up back in Delaware and ended up working at a nursery, sort of in a gap year situation and thought I would really like to try to pursue horticulture, thinking at that point in my life that I would want to have my own design business or, you know, landscape maintenance business. And so I worked for a nursery and and then went back to University of Delaware for horticulture and really, really loved it. My grades were fantastic. Uh, I really dived into all the courses. But I also realized uh, from working in the nursery industry that everybody sold the same sort of hundred plants and I wasn't satisfied with, you know, the same old, same old. And so I thought, where could I go to expose myself to the greatest diversity of plant material? And so for me, the obvious choice was public gardens. And so uh, I found my way to the National Arboretum in D.C. Hmm. and then up to New York to Wave Hill where – I was fortunate to just overlap a little bit with Marco Stefano um, and Scott Canning as one of the earlier directors there. Such a formative experience to work at a place like that with such diversity of plants and things that I never knew was even possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that kind of got me on this on this trajectory into public gardens. And I, I have, you know, frankly, no desire to go back to the commercial world whatsoever. <laughs> Um, and it doesn't look like you're in any danger of that anytime soon, Uli. So describe yeah. a little bit your woodland garden work at Wave Hill, because this is clearly setting you on a path that you mm. have followed in a very specific vein. Yeah. It's a vein we will get more deeply into when we come back around to your current work and its larger importance. But remind people about the importance of that collection there and the plantsmanship and uh, sort of that intersection between native plant and non-native plant diversity and tending that I think Wave Hill really represents. Yeah, so when when I was at Wave Hill, um, Louie was one of the gardeners and had not uh, uh, risen to the ranks of director at that point. So we were, we were colleagues mm-hmm. at the time. And um, you know, I, I sort of walked into uh, a very wild space that uh, hadn't seen a whole lot of, of sort of dedicated attention um, and and had elements of, of, you know, non-native plantings and things that had had uh, naturalized. I think one of the one of the more uh, beautiful shows in the woodlands of, of Wave Hill um, are the glory of the snow, the Kianodoxa mm. that come up in the springtime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a great example of a plant that, that um, you know, plays nicely with natives and, and can bridge that gap between, you know, being incredibly purist about the way that you approach native plant gardening um, and then being a little more realistic and uh, um, making combinations that really, that really fit and work. Um, the, the, the stewardship of course was, it was, it was a challenge. There were a lot of non-natives and a lot of invasive plants that were there and 
Um, and I think, you know, early on, uh, before I really had a real concept of how to approach a space like that, um, you know, I kind of just bulldozed into it and tried to remove as much of the non-natives invasive as possible. Uh, I got horrible cases of poison ivy all the time mm. and then would try to uh, replant in some cases or to encourage some of the small pockets of things that were there. But for me, sort of personally, I think it was the exposure to the more cultivated places at Wave Hill that was the more lasting impression. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the way in which they uh, approached propagation. I remember sort of as a tangent, one of my fondest memories uh, was going to the Bronx Zoo to pick up a load of zoo do. Uh, <laughs> and so what basically what this is was, you know, uncured animal manure. And what we would use it for is we would cover our leaf mold and um, uh, loam piles in the winter with plastic and then about a good foot of this zoo do and it kept it from freezing. And so in the dead of winter, when you needed to make another batch of their of their specific soil blends, um, you would just go out there and get it and you wouldn't have to worry about things freezing. And it was a great natural way to, to keep access to that as a resource uh, through the dead of winter. I can just see the steam rising off of that pile, Uli. Yes. Well, <laughs> it, it, well we won't go into you know, the specifics of what, what you would find there, but, uh, but it, was a, it was a great experience. That really stuck with me too because, yeah. um, you know, I've never had that opportunity again. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Uli Lorimer is Director of Horticulture for the Native Plant Trust based in Framingham, Massachusetts. He is a big fan of including more native plants in your garden in every season. We'll be right back for more with Uli. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. If April reminds us that both poetry and Earth Day are treasures to hold with us every day, then May reminds us of the mothers among us. In this very first part of our conversation, Uli credits his mother and his grandmother with inculcating in him a love of the natural world, in the garden and beyond. The mothering instinct for our people, our places, our plants, it is not to be underestimated. And whomsoever mothered your love of plants, your mother, your father, a teacher, the plants themselves, now is a good time to say thank you. Here's one way you might do just that. For one day only, I'm teaming up with Nicole Burke of Gardenary for a giveaway of our two books, The Earth in Her Hands and The Kitchen Garden Revival, two inspiring books in thought, word, and deed, ready to mail out just in time for Mother's Day. Here's what you need to know. This is on Instagram only and for U.S. listeners only. Go to Instagram and like today's giveaway post. Follow both Cultivating Place and Gardenary Co. on Instagram. In the comments, on the post, at either Cultivating Place or Gardenary, tag someone who inspires you and who you think should win these books too. Then spread the love by sharing the post or tagging other people you think might like to play along for a chance to win inspire a girl or woman or human in your life to keep growing in thought, word, and deed. 
Nicole and I will choose two winners from our pages by random draw, and both they and their tagged inspiration will receive their copies of the two books in the mail just in time for Mother's Day. What could be better than two great garden books at this inspiring time to garden? The journey stories and role models in The Earth in Her Hands remind us over and over how we are all nurtured and mothered by this planet and by smart, caring women the globe over. Every mother and grandmother, daughter, aunt, niece, and nurturers of people and plant babies will be inspired by the power of just one human to grow a positive difference in our world. So happy Mother's Day. All the information and details will be on Instagram at Cultivating Place. Now back to our conversation with Uli Lorimer, another inspiring human, nurturing and planting the change we want to see in our world, one native plant at a time. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with more from Uli Lorimer of the Native Plant Trust. As we come back, he shares with us his experience of moving to the Brooklyn Botanic Garden and his work there with native flora, particularly his work in the New Jersey Pine Barrens. Welcome back. You know, my transition to Brooklyn Botanic Garden, I think, was a um, a real sort of linchpin and for for my for my career and certainly for the way in which um, I approach the work. Um, and uh, primarily, it was the opportunity to learn from and be mentored by uh, botanists and taxonomists. And so, um, I was hired into this garden. It was the oldest garden at BBG uh, that was first laid out in 1910. Um, and so it was a very mature garden with old trees and really wonderful elements to it. And so my first uh, my first year, I didn't really do much of anything other than just observe because I really wanted to learn about how, you know, see the garden through its paces, see how the different plant communities and saw little vignettes behaved, what the cultural conditions were, where was it driest, where was it wettest, um, what the sun conditions and light conditions were. And then thinking in that context, I thought, well, you know, the best way to really learn about native plants is to go see them in context. So go out in the wild and see where do they grow naturally within what kinds of plant communities um, and, and try to draw as much information from observations begin asking questions about, uh, about patterns and process. So, uh, you know, looking at a natural landscape, you, you're, you know, humans are drawn to patterns and distribution patterns. And, and then I would ask myself how, you know, how did this meadow scene come to pass? Um, how are the different players and different individual species behaving? Um, you know, where would this community, where would it be headed, uh, in the short term and long-term future? And in order to really do that, I needed to spend more time out in the wild. And this is where um, the the sort of botany and, and, and taxonomy mm-hmm. piece comes in. And that uh, at the time, BBG had a, um, a long-running floristic study um, called the New York Metropolitan Flora Project. And it was a 20-year look at how the flora of a major metropolitan city was changing. Um, and so there were, uh, you know, a group of 
trained taxonomists who went to visit these five square kilometer voucher blocks repeatedly throughout the entire region. Um, and they would make note of what they saw or what disappeared or what came in. And you begin to analyze some of this data and you can really see that, you know, overall natives are in decline, invasives are coming in. But for me as a horticulturalist, uh, I was just so amazed that I could go to these guys and say, take me <laughs> to see this plant. And they would say, okay, yeah. you know, next week we're going on a field trip. And then you would go to some place you'd never heard of before, never seen before. And then there it would be. And it was just this amazing skill to me that like, A, you could identify any plant, even from little fragments, I would bring things over to them and they would, you know, look at it and, and say, oh, okay, right. this is this. And, you know, they took the time to, to teach me to be self-sufficient with plant IDs. So being comfortable with, with, you know, dichotomous keys and, and hand lenses and that right. whole aspect of it, um, was really fantastic. And, and through that exposures where, uh, uh, and that sort of mentorship is where I was first really introduced to the pine barrens mm. of New Jersey and, and, and also in Long Island. And this was a place that even though I grew up in Wilmington uh, and I was arguably closer to the pine barrens as a child, I had no idea it existed. And this was a place that looks unlike anything I'd ever been in. I was just absolutely captivated by it. Describe it for listeners because it is, um, it, it's a very compelling plant community ecosystem. And it is, um, it's one that really, I think, holds a strongly, poignantly sentimental place in the hearts of people who grew up near it knew about, you know, who who just have ever experienced it. It is a strong, beautiful landscape in concept as well as in reality. Yeah. It's so it's uh it's made up of about one point two million acres of protected land. Um it's the country's first world bioreserve. It got that distinction in the seventies. Um and it is uh, a, it's a it's a matrix of of um, very dry, mostly pine and oak dominated forests that are interspersed by um, river and wetland systems. Um, and because of the the sort of paucity of the soil, um, it's very acidic, and these water systems contain beautiful bogs and other kinds of wetlands. And so. Um, in, in all, you have this, this uh, um, landscape that has lots of microclimates and incredible plant diversity. It's an area that was not glaciated during our last ice age. And so there's some really interesting uh, um, floristic elements to it. There are many plants uh, who reach their northernmost range limits in New Jersey, so things that you would find chiefly distributed into the southeast. There are Conversely, a, a number of plants that um, you would that reach their southernmost range limits. So, uh, one of the examples that's a kind of iconic plant is called Conrad's crowberry, um, that exists in the Pine Barrens. And then you have to skip to um, Cape Cod to see it again, and then you have to skip all the way up into Nova Scotia and Newfoundland mm -hmm. to see it again. So, sort of a disjunct population. So, it's it's floristically very interesting. At first glance, it can appear like there's just acres and acres and acres of pines and, you know, lowbush blueberry, and it doesn't look very interesting. But if you know where to look, and again, this is where that exposure with people yeah. who do know where to look, um, 
there are these just incredible places that are full of, of you know, bogs full of orchids and carnivorous plants and, and lots of state rarities and, and um, just, you know, really delightful scenes. Um, and so this, this habitat was, was uh, you know, made such a strong influence on me that um, a little bit later on in, in, in my career at BBG, um, we had an opportunity to expand the native plant collection um, and it was motivated for the most part because the habitat displays that the original local flora garden um, was meant to display included full sun things like grasslands and pine barrens. And in a, you know, 100-year-old woodland, um, you know, the canopies mature and um, these displays were just not really accurate and they weren't, you know, we weren't culturally able to fully display what what those plant communities um, mm -hmm. entailed. And so um, we had this opportunity to sort of double the size of the, of the native plant collection, and we decided to focus entirely on um, coastal Atlantic coastal plain grasslands, and so of which there's quite a lot mm -hmm. out on Long Island, and pine barrens habitat. Um, and we also decided because of our history of floristics uh, and botany taxonomy that we would only use species of plants and that all of the plant material had to have been grown from seed that was collected so in the wild. God. And so, so this was, it was a big challenge to source yeah. plants this way and, and such a big departure from any of the other kinds of garden installations that had been done at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Um, and it was a process that, that took me and some of, some of the people that I partnered with um, about five or six years to get all of the seed that we wanted. We started with about 130 different species um, and all sorts of challenges you can imagine along the way. Um, seeds that had shattered by the time you arrived and you'd have to wait till next year. Seeds that were too early. Um, you know, Baptisia tinctoria, great, one of our, our native Baptisias uh, here. Um, the seed is often predated by mm. beetle larvae. And so you would find what looked like lots of wonderful seed, and then you would check the pod carefully, and there'd be a tiny little hole at the bottom, and you'd crack it open, and there'd be a fat <laughs> caterpillar inside instead of a seed. And oh. you'd be like, no, you know, you're so frustrated because then you'd have to go back. And um, But it was a really fun process, you know, to be involved in. And I think that the, the garden itself um, reflects that uh, in that it is incredibly diverse. There's lots of neat stuff we had an opportunity to kind of push the boundaries of what kinds of plants um, you can cultivate in a public garden setting. And so growing things that are not you know, like you can't just go to a nursery and buy um, was really fun and exciting and trying to crack some of the, you know, propagation challenges surrounding mm -hmm. those plants um, was also real, yeah. real fun. Yeah. That is just, there's so much in there, Uli. Um, and, you know, behind phrases like, dichotomous key and taxonomy and using, you know, learning to use a hand lens uh, is just the, like, incredible, great joy of discovery as a plants person, like going to meet this friend in its original location and environment that is so 
thrilling, is such a, like, hook for us as plants people. You're just like, oh, look, there you are. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and it, it, it continues to give me that same thrill yeah. today yeah. just as much as it did, you know, the very first time I went out and, and saw something that I recognized. So much uh, comes up in these stories you've just shared with us about where we stand in the native plant world today as gardeners, as botanists, as humans on a planet that is in need of our love and Mm -hmm. attention. Um, And so I I want to get into what, you know, all this knowledge and experience and dedication that you then bring to the Native Plant Trust. I want to get into some of that. The what year would you have started at Brooklyn Botanic, Uli? That would have been 2005? Uh, 2005, yeah. Okay. Because one of the things that strikes me is how parallel your plantsman journey is to this period of time in which loss of biodiversity, pressure and decline in pollinating insects – pressures on native plants around our country, not just biodiversity across the globe, but loss of native plant diversity because of human pressure. Uh, All of these have been really building over that exact same 20, 15-year period. We as gardeners are learning every day now certainly, more and more about how this has come to pass, what we are doing to make it worse, some of the things we are doing to make it better, why we matter in the conversation at all. And, you know, I think that's partly what I'm hoping to get into. And you've touched on a lot of the, the kind of really trigger point threads in the conversation um, at all of those levels already. You you come to the Native Plant Trust last year. You mentioned that it changed its name. I think that right there is is indicative of some of this. Remind listeners why the name was changed and what the current mission is. And then we'll get into some of the like headers for the the program outreach that you're doing and and how we as gardeners intersect with with those kind of top level thinking yeah so um the 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 organization is the country's first plant conservation organization um so long before it was new England wildflower it had a couple other names stretching back to 1900 and so we've always been a plant conservation organization at our core um and and at various times uh and it's, it's you can kind of read this a little bit into the different names that it had um it has tacked a little bit more towards the horticultural end of things um and so you know a wildflower society uh um it 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 conjures up a certain demographic of sorts, uh, and it also you know we had people who would ask us, and this may seem really silly, but you have people that would ask us, well, you guys are about wildflowers, so do you care about trees and shrubs and other things? And then it doesn't really even say anything about the conservation work that we do or any public outreach that we do. And so, um, you know, a, a name that's that's hurting us in that sense isn't really serving us well. And that was the main motivation between 
for for uh, um, changing the name to Native Plant Trust. Um, it's a little bit shorter. It also talks about holding native plants in trust for for the future uh, and for the public's benefit. Um, and you know, we think it's a name that really encompasses the breadth of work that gets achieved here. Um, so, from the conservation side, um, we have uh, a, a sort of model um, conservation volunteer program that has been copied by other conservation organizations uh, throughout the country. Um, our, our what's called NEPCOP, the New England uh, Conservation Plant Conservation Program, um, has been running for about 30 to 35 years now. We have trained over 1,500 volunteers who help us collect and monitor data in every county of New England for, uh, at this point, about 80 to 85 percent of all of the known populations of rare plants. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Uli Lorimer is Director of Horticulture for the Native Plant Trust based in Framingham, Massachusetts. He is a big fan of including more native plants in your garden for every season. In the episode notes at cultivatingplace.com this week, there is more information on his native plant recommendations. We'll be right back for more with Uli. Stay with us. So thinking out loud this week, I loved when Uli mentioned early on that he's a person who holds plants as wayfinders, as landmarks, a person who might give directions like, turn left at the big old oak or just past the grassy meadow on your right. His life and his work emphasize the importance of observing and appreciating plants, studying them and collecting data from which we can all draw real conclusions and craft intelligent plans of action. Herein lies the importance of plant science and scientists and the groups who support and organize them. They are essential right now, while decisions are being made about our world that will have ever greater impact in the future. In your life, in your days, what are your landmarks? I'll tell you, though it's no secret, that gardens, my own and other people's, these are among the greatest landmarks of my life. They are the floristic surveys of our individual lives. Their functions are not the same as the urgently needed scientific floristic work in the field by the smart, caring likes of Uli and the Native Plant Trust, but our gardens are relatives of these larger floristic regions, for better or worse. Our gardens are among the actions we take that inform us and those around us, the actions we take that shape the future in relation So how's the future of the world family looking from your floristic survey? There's no time like right now, starting right where you are, for beauty, for food, for habitat, for joy, to put your garden to good work. Together we grow better. Now back to Uli Lorimer of the Native Plant Trust, whose deep dive into the unlikely beauty and interest of the New Jersey Pine Barrens were a turning point in his life. They were landmarks that shaped his future. And now, through him, they shape ours.
This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. As we come back, Uli Lorimer continues to describe the ongoing efforts of the Native Plant Trust to make a difference in the education and conservation of the native flora of our world, including their native and rare plant seed bank. We have been collecting seed of those rare plants as well, and so we maintain a a seed bank that also represents 20 to 30 years of this work. And so that's incredibly important because we're preserving genetic diversity. In some cases, the seeds are collected from plant populations that have been lost Mm. to development, to uh, invasive species pressure. That genetic resource is no longer out there in the world anymore, but we have it here. And we're, you know, in the next steps of how do we begin to analyze this mountain of data and begin to draw out conclusions and trends particularly in a landscape that is, is, is more and more fragmented and no longer as contiguous as it may have once been. That fact in and of itself, along with the other big pressures of climate change and invasive species, make the advocacy work and the horticultural work that much more important. And it speaks to the fact that home gardeners can't just think of themselves as this little bubble that your choices that you make in your home garden affect the larger landscape. You are part of a much larger uh, ecosystem. You're part of a regional ecosystem. And, you know, our voice is, is joining uh, other people like Doug Tallamy is, is, a, is a wonderful advocate for this sort of uh, approach because he's looking at it from the entomologist's lens. But again, tying it back to the fact that the appropriate plant material is really what the insects want. It's what the birds want. What we're really trying to say is that gardens can't just be pretty anymore. They have to be ecologically functioning. And it's a, it's, a, it's a really wonderful holistic view in that we're providing not just for humans and human benefit and all of the good things that come from gardening, but we're also trying to maximize the benefit for all forms of life, of, of insects, pollinators, butterflies, all of the kind of pretty glamorous things, but then also, you know, the beetles and the things that crawl through the leaf litter and the, you know, unseen things that also benefit from these choices. Um, Because has been proven time and time again that biodiversity is good for the planet. It's good for humans. It provides ecosystems redundancy and resiliency. Uh, Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And and thankfully, there are more and more voices. they have been there a long time, but they are connecting and they are reaching greater numbers. I think of the California Native Plant Society, the Wildflower uh, Center and their yeah. work in Texas, the Atlanta Botanic Garden in the southeast mm-hmm. and their preservation work. And the, t- together, they they make a really compelling narrative that is hopefully reaching all of us because I would argue that the best gardens have always been more than pretty. They have always been these life forces uh, for us and for the the creatures, animals, yeah. plants um, who make their lives there with us. I want to I want to ask you a question that gets sort of deep into some of the controversial um, discussions that that happen in the horticultural and gardening world. And that is that, you know, there is this puritanical mm-hmm. uh, voice in America against non-native plants, that there is this um, this rigid approach and um, 
and a and an edge to when we talk about invasive species and we talk about you know the the benefits of native species and i want to ask how you answer them i i think for me just to like weigh in here because this is not a trick question in any way uli i am an avid native plant gardener in the state of california northern interior California. I grew up in Colorado at 8,000 feet. I have Mm -hmm. a wildlife biologist for a father. I love our native plants. I don't see this as being puritanical. I don't see it as being an exclusive. I see it as being um, an advocate for, for, for this biodiversity. And I feel like there is a native plant and wildland element to North America that most areas of Europe lost many, many years ago, many, many thousands of years ago into some, in some cases. And mm-hmm. I, I, I worry that they don't see what we still have left to lose. Like I think about the Pine Barrens. I think about Yellowstone I think and Yosemite. And I think there is still so much we have left to lose. We don't want to lose it. Yeah, no, I think you, your your assessment is pretty spot on. That um, you know, the Europeans have influenced garden design um, pretty profoundly here in in the United States for a long period of time, um, and it wasn't that long ago when you know North American plants were all the rage and they mm-hmm. were being sent the other direction uh, back to Europe, um, and and I do agree. I think that that. You know, when you when you bear witness to the the splendor and diversity of some of these remaining pockets, um, I think it's natural to want to to champion that and try to preserve that as much as possible. You know, it's it's a tricky question because I think that that on on one hand, um, being too extreme, you come off right. kind of as a as an elitist in a way, um, and. And, and it's kind of off-putting because, you know, here's somebody <laughs> telling you what you can, you can't plant in your garden. Um, but but I think it's also with with more education and more context about why we're advocating what we're for, advocating for, uh, um, people do tend to come around. Um, you know, one of the other, and this is a little bit off topic, but, um, you know, using cultivars of native plants um, is another you know contentious issue where you know the the purists will say you must only use uh, species and they must be you know locally collected and grown from seed so that we can preserve genetic diversity and these are all really valid reasons to do that but the horticultural industry does not serve that desire we're still stuck in this mode of of creating plants for mm. primarily aesthetic reasons and then to keep them looking the way they are and to keep uniformity we're propagating mm-hmm. them asexually or with cuttings and so there's reduced genetic diversity however they are much more accessible to you know the layperson they're at you know a lot of garden centers even the big box stores which i hate to say but they're that they're out there and they end up being a, a sort of like a gateway drug for natives that like people can can get into a little bit and then once you embrace that then you're a little more receptive to uh, the rest of the message you know it, it's interesting that that the 
you know, there's there's so much wrapped up in yeah. this question. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the horticultural industry bears so much responsibility for the introduction of a lot of invasive plants. Um, again, they were brought in because people valued them aesthetically and didn't really understand the process of biological invasions in the way that we do now. Um, but it still doesn't prevent people from going to far-flung places and collecting new things and discovering things and putting them into the nursery trade. And we still continue to churn out countless cultivars of plants. Each one is supposedly an improvement or a better, a better plant than the one before. Um, when, you know, mother nature has had literally millions of years to refine her, uh, um, adaptations and, and evolution of these plants. Um, why do it? You know, because you, you're desperate for a plant that's shorter or has a bigger flower. Uh, and who does that serve? It serves us primarily. It does not serve, um, the rest of the ecosystem. Um, you know, a, a plant with, with, uh, Dark bronze leaves looks great, but it's less attractive for anything that wants to eat leaves and they won't touch it. And so, again, if you if you try to frame the conversation more about um, how can we what how can what we plant benefit the most things, then the answer is fairly clear. If you're looking at it from the perspective of of uh, um, just what benefits humans um, and it's easy to see why you would bristle against suggestions of of not planting um, a European plant or an Asian plant. Um, and there are lots of good garden plants that don't become invasives. Uh, and so there's, there's plenty of room there for, uh, uh, for those to be used. Um, but I still think that ultimately, you know, if, if we are at all ever to get ahead of the invasive plant issue, um, we need to really embrace putting back the, the most appropriate material as yeah. possible. And, you know, I, I, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind as you're talking is the great hope for me as a gardener. And as I said to Doug Tallamy the last time I interviewed him, it's like, but I love my roses, Doug, is that there is there is some there's happy marriage in here. There is that Kyanodoxa blooming beautifully in the woodland at Wave Hill um, that is not depleting the woodland. I think that, you know, one of the great services that the Native Plant Trust and the other voices in the field bring to this conversation is teaching us about those native plants that do so well in the garden and getting them into the trade so that we can use them and and love them, uh, not over-collect them in the wild, not, you know, not care for them well in our home garden and then think, oh, I can't grow natives, they're too tricky. And that is, I feel like that's where we have the best energy happening right now is yeah. getting native plants to gardeners that gardeners will succeed with and just fall in love with. Yeah. Well, I was going to say as another, just a, as a follow-up to this is, is that, you know, I've, I've given lots of talks at lots of native plant symposiums and, and conferences and so forth. And what strikes me is that anybody who's signed up to go to a native plant conference is already in the fold. Yeah. And so it's sort of like our, we're trying our best to amplify our message, but we're stuck in an echo chamber where we need to be is in like real estate conferences and, you know, big yes. like big like neighborhood development or, you know, subdivision development kinds of places where people are making decisions about uh, I'm going to landscape this, you know, 30 home subdivision with the same, you know, non-native meatballs and everything else in lawn and sod. 
and saying like there's another compromise to be made here and uh, the end result is going to be better connectivity with the surrounding woodlots and other things um, and believe it or not you can actually even charge more for it which is unfortunate that it has to be that way but you know there's great examples I had a friend of mine who moved to um, just outside of Chapel Hill and they moved into a community that was intentionally planned with with natives and to try to preserve as much of the uh, surrounding habitat as possible. And, you know, 10 years on, it looks beautiful. It functions, it's full of wildlife and it's a very desirable place to live. And I thought to myself, why are we not doing this all over the place? It's because we're not, we're not reaching the right people. I've had several guests and I know of several people in my immediate area who are, who are making those starting to bridge those conversations with, as you say, real estate agents, with people who are um, staging houses, with development HOAs. And we're making slow strides, but we are, they are there. And um, the fact that you and I are having this conversation is a great indication. Yes. Absolutely. Tell me about the maybe the most exciting plants you're working with right now at Garden in the Woods or initiatives that you will be a part of in this coming year for the Native Plant Trust uh, to bring some of this Native plant life love to life, this Native plant love to life. <laughs> <laughs> this year... The work we're doing this year is we're trying to we're setting ourselves up for some larger future initiatives. So things that we're not necessarily going to be launching this year, but that are in the works and the plans. And mm -hmm. what that revolves around is horticultural research and trial gardens. And um, one of the one of the many questions, for example, that we might address is, um, you know, what happens if you introduce genes from one population to another in a garden setting and this has implications for conservation work, for ex situ conservation work, in situ conservation work. And it's an area in which there just isn't a whole lot of science and data right now to back up uh, good informed decisions. And so we're really trying to be the people that generate that kind of information. So Uli, when you are when you are saying this about introducing genetics from one place to another place and its implications to conservation, et cetera, can you give us an example of what you mean by this so that listeners are clear? Okay. So there, it's a twofold, twofold uh, um, answer. So one is that if we have working with a, a rare plant population that is small, so there's limited gene pool, and you have another population that's geographically distinct, um, and that has another separate gene pool, um, and you want to augment those populations. Um, if you keep just drawing from the same limited gene pool, uh, it, the, the chances of, of, of um, success and hybrid vigor and a, a healthier population uh, are limited. But in conservation, you're not going to do this experiment out in the wild because you don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, and so this is where common garden studies come in, where you can take population A and population B and you can introduce them in a more controlled setting and then you can see what happens. And that helps to inform best management practices for, uh, for existing uh, wild populations. And then um, the question about, uh, about using cultivars versus, uh, versus natives, again, um, 
if you want to plant for for it to support the most wildlife as possible, then you want to make sure that your plants are providing the most. And we don't know, again, if the cultivar of the aster provides as much nectar or as much quality uh, resources, floral resources to pollinators as the species does. And so these are the kinds of questions that where, where more research is needed. And, and this is the sort of thing that we are uh, we're sort of trying to ramp up to to begin to address. Um, and so, you know, like I said, we're still a couple of years out from launching any, anything, but um, we're beginning to do some prep work now and kind of really beginning to, to get some momentum behind this. Um, we have, in addition to me being new, uh, we have a new director of conservation and we recently hired another research botanist. Um, so there's lots of enthusiasm and, and energy around trying to tackle some of these questions um, and to really generate good research data that's going to inform how, um, how conservation is practiced beyond the grounds of the garden. Lots to unpack there. Lots to unpack. And, and that's, that's good. We're in it. Like, this is the work that needs to be done. And um, luckily, there are a lot of very good hearts and minds on the field working at it, including yours and everyone at the Native Plant Trust. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It was a real pleasure to speak with you, Uli. Likewise, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Uli Lorimer is Director of Horticulture for the Native Plant Trust and their associated botanic garden, Garden in the Woods, based in Framingham, Massachusetts. His work as a native plant and biodiversity advocate is informed by years of work in the public garden sector. His is a garden life journey in which it is Earth Day every day. Uli wrote to me this week to update me on the Native Plant Trust's work and status at this time, and he was so gratified to report that since mid-March, their online class registration is up 25% over this time last year, and the garden's retail pre-order sales have topped $100,000, not even having scheduled the first customer pickup. He writes... I feel especially proud to be part of an organization that reaches so many in our community and whose message of resilience is being widely accepted. I'm incredibly grateful for my staff and colleagues who are tackling this new challenge with good spirits and creativity, and that that is a testament to the passion and drive that is put into their work. One of the biggest reasons he loves what he does is because he believes the work has worth and value. Not only is it personally gratifying, he says, but I am leaving something better for the planet and for future generations to embrace and enjoy. He finds the moment spent in the garden that much more meaningful. There's a consistency to the movements of nature that is comforting. And the revival of spring says that we will get through this in the end. Another privilege in his life is the ability to bear witness to the intimate details of spring ephemerals, the strutting and cackling of the new resident pair of wild turkeys and the emergence of fresh leaves. Make sure to check out this week's episode notes at cultivatingplace.com to read Uli's recommendations for good and interesting native plants to add to your garden for bloom and interest and habitat in every season. 
Join us again next week when Cultivating Place kicks off the month of May with two episodes focused on roses. We'll start off with a visit to David Austin Roses in conversation with their head rosarian, Michael Marriott. Join us then. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over on cultivatingplace.com, check out the many images of the beautiful plants and scenes at Garden in the Woods and the Native Plant Trust. There's also a special Mother's Day announcement. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.